Hey everybody, Justin Alverson here. Got a great show for you today. I sat down with Ian Bloom of Open World Financial Life Planning. Ian has a Bachelor's of Psychology from Appalachian State University, his CFP and RLP Registered Life Planner designation. Ian has also written and published a book, A Gamer's Guide to Money, Level 1, which is available on Amazon. We had a great conversation. We spoke about his designations, uh, the RLP, and how that's different from the CFP, and what led to him founding his own firm, Open World Financial Life Planning. Great conversation. Hope you guys enjoy it. All right. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the MSU WMA podcast. We are here today with Ian Bloom. Ian, thank you for being here. Oh, my pleasure, Justin. My pleasure. Yeah. So um, just a little bit of background for, for you. Um, most of our listeners are in uh, Michigan State CFP program. Uh, you know, you're a CFP. I see you have that designation, so you're very familiar. But uh, a lot of us uh, might not be as familiar with, uh, you know, your background. Um, so can you, uh, I guess, start off here and tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, what designations do you have and uh, how did you end up uh, in, a, a, in a career as an advisor? Sure, sure. So, um, so I'm currently a certified financial planner and registered life planner. So those are my two designations. Um, I hold a series 66. Uh, at one point in my career, I held everything from a life and health license to a series seven. Um, but it's sort of my career trajectory begins with uh, a woman I was dating at the time. I was actually a psychology major in college. Um, and was really interested in interpersonal relationships and how to develop those and how to help people overcome difficulties in interpersonal relationships. But I realized that I didn't want to get a PhD. And that's basically what you have to do to do anything of, of, mom of momentum, of, of significance in the psychology field. So what I ended up doing is uh, I met this my girlfriend's father who was a financial planner at the time and he was a cfp and an rlp as well and so he and i spent some time actually alone which is weird with your girlfriend's father the first time you meet him uh <laughs> getting to know each other and uh he he did what's called life planning for me which is basically the idea of like asking some deeper questions in order to put you in a place of envisioning your future and so when, when he was doing that to me, it kind of hit the same part uh, in my brain as like therapy did. Not, not in the sense that he was, you know, dealing with my deep seated issues, you know, <laughs> but in the sense that he was trying to show me uh, how I could enable myself to have a better future. Right. And it was trying to ask questions that would put me in that mindset. And so we ended that conversation with him saying, well, hopefully this exercise has really helped you you know, does, do you have a good feeling about where you want to go with your life? And I said, well, I kind of want to do this. And so that, that was the moment that kind of pivoted me from like being more interested in the field of psychology as a profession to being more interested in finance as a profession, because I realized that you could do both. Um, and, and that in some ways, financial planning is, is uh, even more powerful because you're marrying the reality of the world, the financial aspect with, you know, the, the kind of aspirational um, aspects that you get in psychology. So, uh, so yeah, I, I ended up, um, I ended up working with him, uh, started my career at a large insurance company that was actually letting us do financial planning as our means of doing business and had very low like insurance production requirements. Um, then I 
got sold actually, which is a weird thing that not a lot of people can say. Um, <laughs> I got sold as part of the advisor group from that insurance company to another one. And they were way more focused on us slinging insurance policies, right? Not to, not to knock an insurance salesman, but I wanted to be a financial planner, not an insurance salesman. And so I kind of ended up in this weird position where I was having to wear two hats and they had all these minimum production requirements and they were asking me to compromise on what I wanted to do. Um, and so after some pretty difficult work on myself and what I wanted out of the future, I ended up deciding that I was going to leave and start my own firm. So about a little over two years ago, I started my own firm. And so I've been running my own firm for the last two years. That is so great to hear, man. I, um, we kind of started this podcast and we, as a student group at Michigan State, uh, we're asking all these questions because so many people use that title financial advisor, right? Like from yeah. the insurance salesman. Yeah all the way down the line. So um, it's, it's really important for students to understand that uh, and everybody to understand that because the consumer, on the consumer side, they, they can't tell the difference and it's sad. Oh, not, yeah, not at all. There's, there's no guide to how to look at somebody's business card and determine what they actually do. And that's, that's kind of funny because like I have that problem as a financial planner networking with people. Like I have to actually ask like, so how do your clients pay you? You know what I mean? That's really the only way to determine what somebody's primary means of doing business is. Like, because you know, if they get paid by selling products, well, okay, you, you, you kind of have this product salesman role. You probably do some coincidental financial planning, right? Like you, you probably have to in order to meet suitability requirements or whatever, but you're not actually doing like the full on deep dive financial planning work. And if they get paid via AUM, they probably do some financial planning. Like most AUM advisors do that, um, but they're probably not doing, you know, more than four meetings a year with their clients. They're probably not, you know, getting really, really detailed on, on the models they're building. It's probably more like generally, okay, yeah, we think you can retire at 62 or something like that. And then, you know, you have the full on financial planners that are um, that are really diving in there and their plans have, you know, 18 goals that they're addressing or five goals or whatever, whatever it is. And they're, and they're really getting detailed with their clients and work on the cash flow and all that stuff. And that's, that's like a whole other level, right? So um, what, what financial professionals do is all very different depending on how you're compensated and, and like what your model is for servicing clients. How, um, how do you think, uh, I, I guess, let me back up a little bit. So my sure. next question is, uh, yeah, let, let's, um, can you tell us a little bit more about your, your registered life planner designation? So we're talking about the differences. Yeah. Um, so, um, you know, what attracted you to that? Well, um, we heard your story that that's not very many people. Yeah. I could say, uh, found their career path from, uh, yeah, meeting a girlfriend's father for the first time. I think that's something <laughs> yeah. they all, yeah, I know I wanted to stave that off for as long as possible, but, uh, um, you know, <laughs> So uh, what, you know, what is that designation, the um, sure. registered life planner? Can you, can you tell us more about that? Yeah, so the registered life planner designation is offered by the Kinder Institute of Life Planning. And basically the, so the actual structure of the designation is you go to a two-day workshop, which is basically 12 hours for two days that talks about um, the psychology of money, sort of. It, 
George Kinder is, is obviously the founder of the Kinder Institute, and he, um, he calls it the seven stages of money maturity, right? So it's how, how people emotionally and spiritually address money in their lives without even realizing it, right? Um, and some of these are like money stories, like the things your parents did with money. Some of them are learned behaviors and all that kind of stuff. And so that's the first two-day workshop. Um, and then you go to a five-day workshop, which is a little bit more intense. You life plan somebody and you are the life planner or, and you are life planned rather. So basically they take you through the process that you'll be using with clients by having you do it and then having someone else do it to you. So you partner up with another financial planner, you guys life plan each other and it's pretty cool. I mean, it's really deep work, very meaningful, very transformative. Um, and so that you learn that kind of framework for how do I do life planning for clients? How do I have these deeper conversations? Um, and that's pretty structured, but it's also a little bit nebulous as you might imagine. Like it, it's um, active listening. There's a lot of, there's a lot of skills that go into it that aren't just, Hey, say this, then say this. Right. Uh, and then uh, following that five day workshop, there's a six month mentorship program in which like you submit case studies um, on clients that you've done work for, you give feedback on your colleagues, case studies who are also in the mentorship. And then there's some classes as well that you attend about once a month um, that kind of build on the case study frameworks that you're working on and provide more training. And then there's some interpersonal coaching that the trainers do with you while you're in the mentorship as well. And so it, it ends up being about a year to a year and a half long program, depending on when you take the various classes um, and you receive the RLP. Mm -hmm. You mentioned a lot of things in there that sound familiar to me in my CFP coursework, I'll admit. Sure. So you talk about active listening, um, and that's that's something I definitely stress because I know for us, the client is the focus, especially in that CFP coursework. Um, yeah. So can you tell me a little bit about like maybe what are the key distinctions between the CFP and the RLP? Sure. So I think the CFP is a must, by the way. So let me start by saying I think the CFP comes first for anybody who wants to be a really good financial planner. Um, but I don't think like the CFP used to be this like aspirational thing that like some people, the elite had in the profession. Um, and kind of similar to the way that all doctors have to be MDs, I think all good financial planners have to be CFPs at this point. Um, and that's not a knock on those who are good financial planners over the last 15, 20 years who weren't CFPs. I just think if you're going to enter the profession today and you don't have a CFP, you're doing yourself and your clients a huge disservice. So that being said, I think the, the distinction comes back to the CFP teaches you how to do the actual elements of financial planning. It's like, here's the process to do a plan, right? Here's what the client needs. Here's what a plan consists of. Um, here's how to have the base level conversations to create a plan. And the RLP basically takes the CFP's work and says, okay, so you understand how to address the money things that a client is going to tell you. The RLP is like, here's how you integrate the money things with all of the emotion that your clients mm -hmm. have. Because okay. your clients ultimately have tons of emotion around their money, right? Or they would have solved their money problems on their own. If, if the problems were entirely logical, right? You would just be like, oh, I must do this, so I will. But that's not, that's not how it works. Most clients who come to you are really struggling with paying down debt or they're really struggling with saving for retirement or there's some emotional barrier, right? That is, that is there. And so your job as an RLP is to do a really good job addressing that emotional obstacle and saying, well, how, knowing how important this, this is to you, right? This, this end goal, whatever it is, whatever the ideal life you want to live is, what are we going to do to get past this thing that you've been stuck on? 
How are we going to get over this hurdle? What can we do to solve this? And a lot of those answers come from your clients. So I think the CFP teaches you how to be a good professional and how to give good recommendations. I think the RLP teaches you how to listen to your clients better and how to um, understand the things they're telling them, uh, telling you a little bit deeper than the surface level, right? So here's, here's why I haven't saved in a retirement account. Oh, okay, well, what, what can we do instead? right, is, is a much better question. Um, so I, I think the RLP is a little bit different substantially than that because it's not teaching, it assumes you already have the financial skills, whereas the CFP is about learning the financial skills. Wow. I mean, that's that's so interesting and insightful. I, I you said so many things like the CFP now. I know it's been drilled into my brain in the program. It's the standard, right? Like mm -hmm. that's what everybody has. And even me looking around, just my observation is the CFP is the first thing, but afterward, everybody's got other designations. It's important to try to find that lane. Um, something else I found pretty interesting too is, yeah, some of those other advisors, they all, uh, hearing, you know, it was the people who started as psychologists or, uh, um, maybe what's the word I'm looking for, like a financial, um, like a life coach, a life coach, mm -hmm. or maybe like a teacher. I found a lot of those people um, pivoting into the CFP. They just did so well and not a knock on my fellow finance majors, but yeah, they always say we're the, some of the hardest for us to communicate. Well, yeah, I think, I think the interesting thing is that people who go into the finance career because they like finance ultimately find out that the CFP curriculum helps you deepen those financial skills, but it doesn't help you deep, deepen the interpersonal relationship skills. And that's not a knock on the CFP, right? I think it's doing something very important by making sure that we all have a baseline understanding of insurance and estate planning and, you know, all these, all these complex topics that the public, you know, generally has like a very loose understanding of. Um, we have to be the detailed people who can take the client's issues and come back to them with a recommendation. But that being said, that doesn't necessarily teach you how to listen to a client effectively, right? It doesn't actually teach you how to structure a meeting so that you know that all the client's um, issues are going to be brought to the surface during the conversation. And that's more what the RLP is about. And I, I think I was so attracted to it because I'm such a psychology freak, I guess, is how I would word it. Like the way that the way that people interact with others is, is ultimately what's most interesting. And so I get most of my meaning from working with my clients when I feel like I've made breakthroughs for them, right? When I feel like they've gotten past a personal obstacle that's allowing them to save or allowing them to live a better financial life. I don't get the, I don't get the buzz from seeing their account go up 5%. And some people do, and that's okay, right? This is not to knock why, you know, some people are really good money managers. It's just to say that that's not really what gets my, my uh, engine started, so to speak. That's, I think that people like you are becoming a lot more popular too. I'll just say, it. I think <laughs> like, yeah, well, as, as the, you know, the generations are changing, um, I think millennial groups, Gen Z's, Gen X, that's what they're mm -hmm. looking for. They don't just want the money manager. And quite frankly, it's becoming so commercialized and securitized. You, you need to find other ways to, to build a relationship. So that's, that's so great to hear. Um, so I guess, do you, do you see any trends currently in the RLP space? Like, is it becoming more popular since you started taking the classes or is it get more on the map? Yeah. So, you know, interestingly, um, one of the big trends in the RLP space is also a trend in the financial planner community as a whole. Um, so if you look back at the last like 20 or 30 years of 
finance uh, in the personal financial advice business, right? Specifically, what you'll see is that a lot of like the the best talent was at larger institutions. So whether we're talking about wirehouses or broker dealers or you know um, larger RIAs, you you would see like these these really, really good financial planners would be there because it was pretty hard to run your own business before the technology existed, right? You would have to by hand do all your accounting. You would have to by hand do all your registration with, um, with firms. You would have to update all your uh, documents every year by hand. And so they had people, this was a full-time job for people at like broker dealers and stuff and still is. Um, but now what you're seeing is because a lot of financial planners are going out on their own and starting their own firms like myself, um, there's a lot more interest in the RLP than there ever has before. Because first of all, the people who are out on their own have to do something different, right? They have to be in some way unique compared to the larger organizations. Um, but then also when you're out on your own, you have a lot more flexibility in how you do the work. Because when you're at a bigger company, they're like, here's the way we do financial planning. Here's how you are allowed to make money. And now that you're out on your own, you can make money any way that's legal, right? And so that's, <laughs> that's different. Yeah. That's a lot more flexibility than those, limited, than those limited entities. And so as a result, like one of the biggest things that happened for the RLP recently is um, they did the first two-day workshop at... Um, the XY Planning Network conference mm. in, at the end of 2019. And that was a 70 person workshop. Like they filled up and then had to increase class size and then filled up again. Um, and so that's, you know, that's a pretty big surge, I guess, in interest. And then they've gotten multiple like five day workshops full off of that and so on and so forth. So basically I think what what's happening is the RLP is penetrating the, the smaller advisor marketplace a lot more, maybe not tons more people getting it um, necessarily, although I do think that it's happening. I think the most significant change is that a lot more people are aware of it, right? And that it exists within that community and are seeking it out as maybe not their now plan, but their future educational plan or whatever. Um, whereas before, I think because, you know, if you worked for, uh, I shouldn't name names, a big wirehouse, <laughs> let's say, um, they wouldn't let you really spend the amount of time with clients you needed to, to truly make use of the RLP skills because it was more about closing the next big client, right? Selling the next account. And that's not really the game when you're out on your own. The game is keeping your clients happy because it's way, way better to have 50 clients that are with you forever than to have 75 clients who are coming on and off your services at any given moment, right? Because you want that stability, that, that paycheck. You don't necessarily want the, uh, the big spikes and dips in your revenue model harder to manage. I, um, I'm really excited. I want to ask you here in a second about sure. uh, the foundations of your firm. But before we do, uh, you were mentioning um, the workshops and the Kinder Institute, but what else do, what are the requirements of the RLP? Like, do you need a bachelor's degree? Do you need to have to be, do you need to be a CFP? What, what are the requirements? So you don't need to be a CFP. There are RLPs who aren't CFPs and they just focus on like the life coaching, life planning aspect of the work. Um, and I don't know that you need to have a bachelor's degree. That's something that I would have to look up to answer for you. So I'm yeah. sorry. No, um, we can look that up ourselves. So. Yeah, <laughs> but, uh, but I do know that it is somewhat expensive, right? It's like a $10,000 program when all is added in. So not as expensive as like a year of college, for instance, but it's not cheap either. 
Um, and then I think the other big requirement is like, uh, I, I really think it, it takes a certain type of person to be a really good RLP. You have to be able to, to emotionally access yourself a little bit because it is asking you to do things that are inherently based on like EQ and as opposed to IQ, right? So like if we, if we talk about the difference in types of intelligence as like IQ being like mathematical and like logical intelligence, EQ is like uh, emotional intelligence, your, your ability to relate to others, your, your ability to be empathetic and those sorts of things. Uh, for some people, that, that is a big ask. It is going to push you a little bit to open up and be more comfortable with yourself because if your clients will feel if you're not comfortable with the things you're asking them, right? <laughs> if you're like, uh, if you were to design your ideal life, uh, I guess what would be important to you? that comes off very different than if you were to design your ideal life, what would be most important to you? Right? So you have to ask the questions as confidently as you want the answers to come from, right? If you ask them nervously, if you ask them um, not entirely sure of what answer you're going to get, your clients are going to pick up on that. So. It's so important. I can tell you one thing as somebody in a business school, that's really not something they teach. They teach you how to present in a corporate environment, but that's not the same thing as presenting to people one-on-one. -on -one. I can tell you that. So no, it's so, not. <laughs> yeah, it, it's it very is. much not. Yeah. I know. Well, I noticed that right away. I interned for a bigger RIA this summer and I noticed that right mm -hmm. away, the difference between presenting to classmates of 30, 40 people and then a team of four or five, it's a totally different dynamic. So I uh, can definitely relate to that. Um, and now I, so I do want to shift gears a little bit here and I want to ask you maybe about the origins of you starting your own firm. So open world, uh, financial life planning, uh, yeah. I'm, I'm really excited to hear about that. So something I, um, I find interesting, uh, is the, the people such as yourself who want to go out there personally to give you a background on myself. I find security in going to these big firms. I'm going to a, a larger RIA out there, but, um, you know, I guess I just don't, I know I don't have the guts, so to speak, to take the plunge. So um, can, you, can you tell us a little bit about that? Um, I know we touched on a little sure. bit, but well, what, what was that decision-making process like? Sure. Um, so the first, the first step was, so the first step is I decided I was unhappy where I was, right? Mm. And something needed to be different. I didn't know if that meant I needed to create a new relationship with my employer in some way, or if that meant that I was going to leave or whatever. So I hired a business coach um, who actually, you know, her name's, uh, her name was Janet Tyler Donson. She actually passed away two weeks ago. So, rip. Um, but to hear that. that's okay. She was a wonderful coach, and I know she helped a lot of people. So she would be happy with that as part of her legacy. But so so I hired her, and we spent about six months working together, where we went through a lot of different like iterations of what I could do. Right? It was like, do I try to change my practice so that I do end up selling more insurance was the first question. And the, the answer we came back with on that was no, because I had an ethical hang up with that, right? I was like, I, I, I just don't think that the 27 year olds that I'm doing financial planning for need to be buying a whole life policy right now. It's just not mathematically the best thing for them. Um, so so that, was, that was answer one. Uh, answer two was, well, is there a firm I can go to? And so at the time I was with, with my ex and we wanted to stay in North Carolina. Our families were there. Um, and so that kind of limited my scope a, a lot, right? Cause I'm like, okay, not only do I want a job at a firm that's doing business the way I want to do business, but I also want it to be at a, at a firm in the Raleigh, North Carolina area. And 
there really aren't that many. There's basically one firm that I think does prior to me starting my business was doing things kind of equivalent to what I am. And they're called financial symmetry. Shout out to them. They're a great, great firm. And there are some other smaller firms that are doing things really well too, but they weren't hiring at the time. And so I looked at that and I was like, mm, I don't know, right? Like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to find a job in my area. So then the next question was, could I launch my own business? So I had to look at my finances. Yeah, I had like $50,000 of reserves that I could live on for a couple of years if I needed to. And I, would, I also looked at, you know, like what, what would that mean for myself and my wife at the time? What, 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 were, what were the, uh, the things that I had to look at? And I came back by saying, well, yeah, I think I could do this. So the question is, should I? And then we went through that decision-making process. And so basically the whole process took six months and the last three months of that were me like looking at resources to launch a business. Like, could I do this? And then I put in um, my, my notice and the same day I kind of left. Um, and the reason is, is because in the old school business model, so to speak, of, of the financial industry, they don't actually want you around when they know you're going to leave uh, because it's all production based, right? So you're not going to sell anything if you're going to leave in two weeks. Um, and, and also uh, they don't want you taking your client's data with you or whatever. And so I told all my clients what I was doing. I told them to reach out to me if they did want to continue. Um, my non-compete was very, very limited because I had been part of that group that was sold to them. And so thanks to people, um, people like my mentor who had negotiated with them, the non-compete was basically like, I just couldn't um, have any of my clients, if they came with me, like cancel their insurance products that had been bought through that organization or cost that organization any revenue that was guaranteed to them, right? So um, so that was a pretty easy non-compete to work around, right? Or most of the stuff that I put my client, actually all of the stuff that I put my clients in was ideal for them. That's why we had done it in the first place. So we had no plans on canceling it. <laughs> so, um, so, so that was kind of what the process was like. And then, you know, uh, in the business launching space, that is, that is a whole other conversation. It's, it's difficult. Um, XYPN is the network that I use to launch my firm and it makes it a lot easier um, I still maintain ownership of my firm. Obviously, I still own the LLC and all that, but they provide a lot of the services that are kind of ancillary to it. So they do, uh, they offer like all the technology that I use is basically through them. Um, they help me with compliance. They helped me with the initial registration. Uh, they provide a community, which is actually how I met Colin, the guy who introduced me to you. Um, and, and they provide a lot of other stuff. So they're, they're really, really good network for launching a firm through and maintaining that sort of community aspect of working at a larger firm while still being in a, in a you know, solo advisor environment. That's great. The compliance thing, you say that, that's the one thing I always hear, right? Like I'd be afraid yeah. to do that. I come from a family of legal people. My mom's a paralegal, brother's in law mm. school. So that is a very tricky, that's, it's great that they're there to be able to support that. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of cool because one of the things is since they've registered so many firms in every state, cause they're at like 1200 member firms or something crazy, right? It's a pretty big network. Um, they have 
experience in every state, basically, registering firms. So I'm in North Carolina. I went to them. You know, we're talking about my registration. He's like, and the compliance guy is like, well, these are the things that are unique about North Carolina that you need to pay attention to, right? This is where the law is a little bit different here than it is in another state. Da, 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 da. And so he's walking me through all of that. And we're designing my documents, like my ADV, which, as you know, is like the big disclosure document you have to provide to clients, my privacy policy, how I can behave on social media, all that kind of stuff was specifically designed based around North Carolina's laws, right? Um, and so I, I have that for counsel and then I can talk to them. Um, they have like a, a, a call with any member in the network, like basically like an open call that you can join once a week. And then on top of that, you can pay for additional one-on-one -on -one time. If so it's nice to have that resource, right? Like if I was out on my own, I'd be terrified. <laughs> Well, that's, I mean, that's, I think what scares a lot of people. That's what scares yeah. me, quite frankly, as a college student looking out, man, that's intimidating. It's very intimidating. Um, you mentioned something too, the, the client acquisition aspect. So mm -hmm. um, when you, it, it sounds like um, you took um, at least a decent or not a decent amount, but you, you put out the beacon call to your old clients, right? Like that's, that's nice. I'm not sure yeah. how many people would have that opportunity leaving one firm and trying to start the other. Right. So like you're in this kind of legal gray area when you're leaving the firm, depending on what your non-compete says, right? Like some firms will tell you if your clients reach out to you, you can take the call, right? But if, if, you, if you reach out to your clients, that's a breach of contract. Some firms will tell you, you can't work, work, work with your previous clients for one year, or some will say two. And, and so there's all this, you need to know specifically based on your previous employer, what your setup is. I ended up basically being able to bring over five clients at the end of the day. So I didn't start fresh, so to speak, but it wasn't like this giant jump start either. You know, there are some people who leave uh, an old firm and have a deal with their old firm where they can bring their clients and they pay some amount. And so they're starting their new firm with, you know, 50 or a hundred or $200,000 in revenue. That was not me, <laughs> right? I was starting my new firm. I think in year one, I did $6,000 in revenue. Um, uh, and that, that was like kind of a half year because I started my firm in August. So I don't want to make it seem pretty, you know, like super grim. Um, and then in my year two, I did like 16,000. And then in year three, I, uh, like I finally started like making money, so to speak. Um, and and I, that's because the trajectory of an advisory firm um, and XYPN has great data on this. If you look at the XYPN benchmarking survey, like a solo firm grows at roughly like 100% or more in the first four years. So like in year, in year three, average revenue numbers are somewhere in like the 36 to $38,000 mark. In year four, they're over 80. So, and this is based on averages across, you know, a thousand advisors, basically. So when you're looking at those numbers, it provides a lot of clarity on what you should expect from your business trajectory, right? You either need your expenses to be super freaking low in the first two years, or you need to have a pretty big amount of resources to draw on in order to make it through that period of time. But then when you're looking at year three, year four, things start to get to where you can actually pay yourself, um, like at and amount. Year four is probably where you can pay yourself what you would make somewhere else. Year three is probably where you can pay yourself like higher than minimum wage, but nothing crazy. You know what I mean? Yeah. So Still Uber Eats on the side, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. kind of that's kind of the trajectory. So you just got to be able to pay attention to that and know 
like candidly and realistically what you can expect and then be able to adjust your lifestyle accordingly. Right. You shouldn't be spending, like you said, Uber eats money. You should go pick up the takeout, <laughs> you know, that kind of stuff in years one and two. <laughs> so, so why do you, um, why do you think that trajectory is so like big for an individual firm? Is it sure. just like the low overhead? Like why is, yeah, why is it, why is it such well, a- So those are pure revenue numbers. That's not yeah. even talking to overhead. Um, yeah. Overhead stays pretty, pretty, uh, pretty fixed. I mean, it's like not quite fixed, but it, it, it does go up, but it doesn't go up linearly is what I would say, right? So it goes up in a very, very small amount every year, assuming you stay a solo firm because you might grow and take on other advisors and that's a whole different conversation. Um, but I think the revenue numbers grow so quickly for two reasons. One is um, in the first year, you're dealing with a lot of like random stuff you have to do as a business owner, setting up your LLC, you know, getting registered, doing all the stuff that you need to do to be legally compliant to actually operate your business. And so that's kind of like getting registered and getting your first couple of clients is kind of the first hurdle you're getting over. Um, and then after that, you kind of want to get from like this five-ish client mark to like 20 clients. Because 20 clients is where I would say like firms are stable revenue wise. Like you you can earn enough that you can probably afford a basic apartment and an average cost of living area and to live. And then you can also afford your firm's overhead, right? That's probably the 20 client mark depending on your revenue model. And so as a result, that that becomes the dominant focus in that in that like I don't know, six months to 18 months kind of range of a firm. So almost the two year mark. And, and that is, um, that is basically a full-time marketing job, right? Your goal is to meet people and expose yourself to new people in your community. And then eventually somebody's going to, you know, identify with your message. You know, mine is financial life planning for nerds, right? So I, I do rule out people by saying that intentionally, right? I don't, I don't really want to work with people who think nerds are weird because I'm a nerd. So they're going to think I'm really weird. Uh, <laughs> but, but I do want to work with people who are like, heck yeah, I'm a nerd. I, you know, I'm interested in you explaining life insurance to me as a Pokemon analogy. And I'm like, I can do that. That is a skill I have. Right. So, so as a result, like as I expose more people to the idea that I'm the financial life planner for nerds, a certain amount of people stand up and raise their hand and go, I'm a nerd. And that takes time, right? That can't happen immediately. Um, because that's, whatever your marketing plan is that's like you posting enough youtube or tiktok videos that's you going to enough in-person networking events that's you getting referred to enough people that's you you know all of those things take time they happen gradually um so that's the first answer and then the second answer is honestly like people in your community when you first launch a business don't necessarily trust that you're going to be around in a year and so you kind of got to prove to them that this is something that you're going to be doing as your full-time thing um, and that it's a commitment that you're making and all that kind of stuff. And I think there is some element of like people start showing up more as they trust that you're going to be there more. And then the third thing is like the main time that financial planners and financial advisors, anybody in the personal finance industry picks up clients is in moments of transition um, for the client is what I mean. So like when clients have problems, they seek financial advice. Well, People aren't having problems continuously, thankfully, in the finance space. But like, let's say your friend decides that they're going to have their first child, right? And you're a financial planner. They might have questions about the financial cost of a child. How do we save for education? How much money should we be prepared to spend on this child's care? How much does daycare cost? Those sorts of things. 
that might be the first time that they even consider looking at a financial advisor. And if you've been in, in, in the business for a while, you'll know that if they trust you, they'll reach out to you. Right. So some of it is like, you just have to wait. Um, so all of that, I think contributes to that same effect. If that answers your question. It does. Yeah. Um, you were mentioning financial planning for nerds too, and that touched on something I was really interested in hearing more sure. about. So um, it sounds to, it, I don't know, just hearing what you said so far, it sounds to me like that was kind of a personal journey, but I'm curious. So like, how did you settle on that uh, group? Cause I, you know, it's very important to find your niche demographic, but um, sure. so my question is, you know, you know why nerds specifically? What, what's, uh, <laughs> what's the appeal there? <laughs> uh, sure. So, I mean, uh, going back to high school, I've identified myself as one of the nerds. Uh, I played MMOs as a kid. I, I And MMOs, for you listeners who aren't gamers, are massive multiplayer online games. So, like World of Warcraft, RuneScape, that kind of thing. Um, I play board games. I play Dungeons and Dragons. I, you know, if you were on video right now, you could see in my background, there's a bunch of action figures on a shelf. And so I knew that whatever clientele I developed, I wanted them to be comfortable with that part of my identity because it's very much part of who I am, right? I make jokes that are relevant to the nerd community. I post memes. I do, you know, I do all the silly stuff that nerds do. And so if my client was going to be, and this will be stereotypical, but like a 65 year old former athlete, they might not be comfortable with that identity, right? Because if you go back in time, like being a nerd just became cool about 10 years ago, right? Before that, like the stereotype of a nerd was like never left his parents' basement, wore glasses, had had like a very nasally voice, like was very unfit and unattractive. And so, you know, you come to forward to the modern era and we have the Avengers and Game of Thrones and these these big cultural moments that are definitely part of nerd fandom, right? and that have made being a nerd like a societally acceptable thing where you're not like an outcast for being one. And so, um, so first of all, that's why I think you no know, branding before has spoken to this before me and there's one other financial planner out in California, his name's uh, Galen and he does financial life planning for, or financial planning for streamers and content creators. So he's in the nerd community, but mostly like with the Twitch crowd. Um, and so, yeah. And so, uh, so I guess my point is, is that I, I think that when you're going to develop like an individualized brand, right, you're like, I'm starting my own firm, I'm going to do something, you should be looking for a group of people that either culturally or, um, or for some like very practical reason would identify with the brand. Right. And so financial life planning for nerds is funny because all the people who I talk to who aren't nerds, when I say that, they laugh and go, that's awesome. I'm glad that you're able to say that about yourself. And like, I, that's a cool brand. I'll let you know if any of my nerdy friends need a financial planner. And they remember that. Right. Because it's it's a good tagline. And then uh, in the nerd community, like I said, when I say I'm the financial life planner for nerds, their ears perk up and they look at me and they're like, is he really right? So, you know, it's, 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 it's distinct, I guess is the point. And I think good branding is always distinct in some way. It, it just might not be distinct to everybody. It might be distinct to a particular community. It's yeah, that's so interesting. Um, I think that, yeah, that, like you said, the nerd culture, I've, I've seen a change in my lifetime, like the Scott mm -hmm. Pilgrims of the world, right? Like that's become a lot more yep. mainstream and uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's going to be interesting to see where that goes. So um, I was doing a little bit of my research here and I see that you have a book out, uh, a gamer's guide to money, which is, yeah. falls right into what we're talking about here. So <laughs> sure. yeah, 
Yeah, I um, I don't know if I'd call myself a gamer. I you know played Call of Duty and Battlefield and stuff growing up. I'm, um, don't wouldn't consider myself a gamer, but I know that that like demographic is huge. You keep hearing about that more and more. I've heard mm-hmm. the other day that uh, who was I think it was Netflix considers Twitch more of a competitor than somebody like Amazon. Like they yeah. you know these these gaming spaces are huge. So um, I uh, I'm curious. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about your book, A Gamer's Guide to Money, and um, why that was necessary? Sure. So I think um, one of the things that is true about finance books is that they're only helpful if you understand the content, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And the best finance books take very, very difficult concepts and teach them to you in plain English. Uh, As it turns out, gamers have a different lexicon than everybody else. Um, Like, for instance, when I think about where my gamer clients like see the most value it's in the progress bars I provide them for their financial goals. They don't actually care about like um, all the details of what I'm telling them. If I show them like you are 50% of the way towards having your retirement, they're like, heck yeah, let's get that to 55. Right? Like that is their answer um, because they understand that they're, they're used to looking at stat sheets for dungeons and dragons or stat sheets for their characters in video games. And so they know what that incremental improvement is like. And so that's kind of the approach I took with the book. I was like, okay, well, in three pages, let me describe savings to you. In three pages, let me describe debt to you. And I have like these little allegories with characters in them that would be like in a video game that would break down like a scenario in which this would occur so that it becomes relatable. Um, And so my goal in that was to just kind of write something in the gaming lexicon that um that describes finance because i don't think anybody's doing a good job of that yet do you think gamers are like just a i don't know a universal demographic or do you think that like that's going to grow and there's going to be broken up like what what do you oh, think about that it's already a bunch of subgroups so like you know i mentioned for instance there's a so people who play dungeons and dragons every weekend and people who play Uh, Call of Duty are very different gamers, right? You could still call both of them gamers. That would be the overarching heading. But people who play tabletop games like Dungeons and Dragons think differently than the people who are playing Call of Duty, right? Because Call of Duty is all about fast twitch reactions, getting the headshot before your opponent does, all that kind of stuff. D&D is all about like playing the odds and knowing the percentage chance of if you roll this die, are you going to win or lose the game, the fight, right? I mean, a very different game. And, and D&D is about telling a story, whereas Call of Duty is about living a, a, a violence fantasy, let's say. <laughs> not to not Call of Duty. I, I'm a fan of shooting games as well. Um, but, you know, they're very different games. And so, yeah, I do think there are different subgroups of gamers. There's... Um, and so to, to be honest, like my branding financial life planning for nerds is a pretty broad stroke. And that's because I've found that I'm a little bit of a, um, of a neutral party in the gaming community and that I, I enjoy most of the gaming subgroups. Right. So like I enjoy watching Twitch streams. I enjoy playing league of legends. I enjoy playing dungeons and dragons. I enjoy playing call of duty. These are all very disparate things in the gaming community. Um, that I enjoy participating in. And so if somebody sits down with me and says, my my nerd language is Pokemon, I'm like, great, let's talk about everything like you're building your perfect Pokemon party. I'm fine with that. If someone sits down and says, well, I played a lot of Battlefield growing up. That's kind of the nerdiest thing about me. I'm like, okay, cool. I can relate to that. Let's, let's, let's run with this narrative, right? Um, so 
that's why I made it kind of broad strokes. And I also think that nerd is uh, broad enough that it fits with most of the people I want to work with, but specific enough that the people who identify with that term know who they are, if that makes sense. Like I've never met somebody and I asked, are you a nerd? And they were like, I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah. they're, they're like, I'm a nerd or I'm not. Right. That's usually been the case at least. So that's, yeah, I, uh, I think that's very true. I, uh, definitely agree with that um so um do you think nerds and gamers do you think they make good clients yeah I, I do because i think they're inherently people who have so so nerd culture is all about like having a very deep interest in things right like if you've ever met somebody who's really into lord of the rings they can tell you like all about these fictional cities they can tell you about every character in the series and all that kind of stuff um which means that they're inherently interested in detail you just have to make it relatable to them mm. Right. And then the same level, um, gamers are very interested in making progress. Like most video games are just progress bars with a reskin, right? Like Call of Duty, the main mechanic that everybody's doing is they're trying to become the best Call of Duty player and or they are trying to unlock all the weapons, right? The weapons are just progress bars till you can use them. <laughs> and so all I have to do to describe to a Call of Duty player why they should care about this financial goal is like, hey, if you if you do this enough you unlock that sports car you want right like that's how it that's, that's how it works you do this action repeatedly and eventually you get enough xp that you can drive the sports car and xp is just money in this case right or whatever whatever the goal is like it's not that hard to describe to a gamer how to achieve a goal they inherently know that they've done that before gaming is just goal achievement um so that's been that's been my experience is really easy to work with gamer and nerd clients because it's easy to get them interested in things and to explain things in a term for them as long as you know how to and i'm sure that's the same for everybody right that's if you're if you're a really good athlete you know and you launch a financial bit financial business it's like financial planning for high performance athletes i'm sure you can describe finance in a way that high performance athletes will be interested so I think it's just about identifying a group that you have a better way of speaking to than anybody else. That, that makes a lot of sense. And this has been fantastic. Uh, I've learned so much today. Um, last, last one here, I wanna open the floor up to you. Um, is there anything maybe we didn't touch on today that you'd like to say to our, our listeners out there? Anything about the field or about gaming or nerds or anything? Um, well, thank you. Uh, first of all, it's been fun interviewing with you. But the... I guess the the thing that I always like to end on if I'm giving a speech in the financial planning space is like, just be really, really interested in your clients. Everything works out if your goal is to be the best you can be for them. Um, because at the end of the day, they're the people who pay you. Even if your firm is giving you a salary, your clients are paying it. You just don't know it. Um, <laughs> at the end of the day, they are the people who we are trying to make the world better for. So um, if you go in with that altruistic approach of like everything that matters is what the client experiences and how well they are served by our firm, your firm will do great. That's how, that's how firms grow is by doing really, really good things that nobody else is doing for their clients. Awesome. Ian Bloom, thank you so much. You're welcome, Justin. Hello, everyone. This is Vincent Pacillo, producer of the MSU WMA podcast where we are inspiring and educating the next generation of financial planners. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed it, please check out our channel on all platforms such as Spotify and Apple Podcasts. 
and check out our social media at MSUWMA and MSUWMA.com. Thank you.